there are few things in this world that are impervious to erosion. Few things that are, that are not diminished by the passage of time. Few things that are not worn out or affected by the second law of thermodynamics. Christian joy is one such thing. The Bible says that joy comes to the Christian bundled alongside of love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and so on when we receive the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, joy for the believer is something that, that, that comes to us passively. But there's another sense in which the Bible commands us to joy in the Christian life. And we rejoice in this, don't we? That our Lord has given us a gift of joy and that joy in him can be our prized possession at all times, even if things are not going as we had hoped. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to obey the dictates of our flailing emotions. Our joy is not shackled by our circumstances. Christian joy, in fact, cannot be shackled, and that's been our consideration starting last week, things that can never be shackled, and Christian joy is one of them, and the Apostle Paul proves this very thing. I want to, as we turn back to Philippians chapter 1 this morning, even though we will consider really verses 15 to 18, I want to begin reading in verse 12, just to remind you again of context. You'll recall that Paul is in custody for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is shackled at his wrists to an elite Roman soldier. And Paul is dictating a letter to a secretary, if you will, one who is writing these things down for the churches, particularly the church in Philippi. And they are deeply concerned about him. They've sent a representative to him. They've sent a gift to him. And they are deeply concerned for his well-being, and yet Paul seemingly is not all that concerned about his well-being. He's not giving much attention really to his circumstances as he writes. Paul wasn't one, as we mentioned last week, to complain. He was not a whiner. He trusted that all the circumstances that he was encountering were in fact from the Lord's hands. That's why he referred to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He referred to himself over and over again as a prisoner of the Lord. He referred to himself as a as one who was in chains for the gospel. It wasn't because of Rome that he was in chains. It wasn't even because of the Jews who had initially arrested him that he was in chains. He was in chains because in the providence of God, it was the will of God that he be in chains. And he knew that and he embraced that. And he writes to tell the Philippians that all is well with him, even in the midst of this hardship, he writes to tell them that there's every reason to be rejoicing because while he is bound in restraints, the word of God is not bound and the gospel is multiplied. And it comes through the text, I think, as you read it and certainly as you read through the rest of Philippians that Paul is buoyant. I was very nearly going to write the word bubbly, that he is 
he is boosted, he is elevated, he truly is not trying to put on a joyous face with a downcast spirit. He is one who is truly joyful, though his situation is not much to rejoice at. It was no put on for Paul. Let's read together Philippians chapter one, and we'll pick up in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are, pre- are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in this, I rejoice. Lord, we thank you for your perfect word, tried, purified. It is poignant and it is powerful. It is living and it is active. Lord, every word, every jot, every tittle, every verse, every book, Lord, all of it is God-breathed. All of it is profitable to us. We pray that you would, in fact, profit your people this morning, that you would teach us again, Lord, to live in a way that is certainly not natural. It is certainly not intuitive to us. Help us, like the Apostle Paul, to grow in our maturity and our confidence in you, that we too, with him, might rejoice always and again rejoice. This is your gift to us. This is your call to us. Teach us from your word we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Paul was told, wasn't he, very directly and personally at the outset of his ministry right after he was converted by a prophet named Ananias that he was going to suffer and he was going to suffer mightily for the sake of Christ that those words came directly from the Lord to Ananias who took them to Paul. And Paul came to understand very quickly that faithfulness to Christ will bring the reproach of Christ. And that reproach comes at a, at a magnificent cost, especially for him. And in this case, it landed him in prison with a death sentence hanging over his head. Paul had been beaten five times. He had received lashes to the point of death. He had spent time in the ocean, in the deeps, clinging to the the wood of a wrecked ship. Paul had suffered mightily at the hands of many for the sake of the gospel. And it is very instructive to us that here Paul, nearing the end of his life, is sitting in in, in in rented quarters, He's chained to a prison guard. He is sitting there uncertain about his future. It is instructive to us, isn't it, that even in these extreme circumstances, in this kind of adversity, 
Paul did not fall prey to some sort of disabling discouragement or depression in his life. But he rejoiced. He was content. And he faces the challenges that he faces with joyful courage. And last week, as I said, we began to look at things that simply cannot be restrained or shackled in this world. We saw the first thing was the gospel of Christ cannot be shackled. Paul confesses in this text that really God's plan for his imprisonment was good, that it was profitable, that it actually increased the pace of the gospel and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord saved many of the men, you'll remember, who were charged to guard him, who would switch guarding him at every six-hour interval, and many of them came to Christ. All of them were aware of Paul's imprisonment for the cause of Christ. Paul was, as he understood it, put in chains that those who were held by the cords of sin and death might, in fact, have their chains removed. And this caused Paul great joy. He says that the whole Praetorian Guard, you remember those were Caesar's special forces, if you will, came to know about Paul, came to know about his Lord. They were, many of them, saved, and they carried the gospel even into Caesar's household and throughout Rome and unto the world as they went about their military duty. And this caused Paul great joy that the word of God, in fact, is not imprisoned, that the gospel goes forth, but it didn't stop there. He said not only can the gospel not be restrained, but the gospel cannot be restrained because the church cannot be silenced. And that was the second thing we noted. The preaching of the church cannot be shackled. Paul may be incarcerated, but that didn't stop him from preaching. In fact, it not only was demonstrated that he was faithful to his call to preach, though in shackles, but it inspired the church to go out and preach. He put it in this language that, that those in the church at Rome have, quote, far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. They thought of Paul in his bonds for the sake of Christ. They saw his faithfulness. They knew of his uncompromising faith of his commitment to fulfilling the ministry that Christ had given to him and where in the past the church might have watched him in wonder, where they might have in the past applauded his efforts and acknowledged the, the giftedness of the apostle Paul, now the church moves out of the stands as Paul is sidelined and onto the field. They have skin in the game. They've got blood on their jerseys. A number of you mentioned to me last week that hearing these things made you think about all that's going on in Ukraine right now and, and particularly the, the, the embattled president there, Vladimir Zelensky. And it is an earthly example of this sort of thing, isn't it? Here is this embattled president and against all odds he's got murder for hire death squads four or five hundred people looking to take him out he's got a wife he's got children he's young he's got all the money he needs he's got one of the most powerful nations in the world 
the United States of America saying to him, we will get you out. We will make safe passage for you. And you remember, you remember the words as he stood firm. I need ammunition, not a ride. What kind of impact do you think that had on his people? What kind of impact does that sort of thing to a much greater extent have on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? In the same fashion, Paul now embattled, Paul facing death, Paul in prison, and the church rallies around him. His example gave them strength to do what they had not done much before. They became verbal, they became bold, they trusted the Lord, and they became fearless in their proclamation of the gospel. And so the gospel just explodes when Paul goes in chains. And beloved, the, the great commission was given to the church, and Christ does indeed, by his power, build his church, but he does it through means. He does it through you. He does it through the faithful proclamation of the word of God. And that is why the preaching of the church cannot be silenced, ever. And you read church history, and church history is just loaded with the spirit of, of Peter and John who stood before the magistrate and, and said to them when they were forbidden to speak, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than him, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about all that we've seen and heard. You see, we understand this, that both the message and the mouth belong to God, and they are to be dedicated to his service, and neither can be shackled. How shall they hear, Paul says, without a preacher? And so God made his people preachers. And this is why so many persecuted Christians, again, I, I spoke of the, the book of martyrs last week, uh, of Fox's Book of Martyrs, if, if you read through those accounts, you see horrific things being done to the people of God. But over and over again, what you see as they go through their torments is that they continue to preach, so much so, at, at death's doorstep, so much so, that the persecutors eventually had to turn, in many cases, to cutting out the tongues of those who were being burned at the stake pouring hot lead in the mouth of those who were being burned at the stake. I read of one account of, of a person who had a hole bored in their tongue and a chain run through it and then a hole in the cheek so that they could, they could chain the tongue to the cheek. Amazing. The word of God will go forth. And we have seen it in the scriptures go forth from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen it go forth from the mouths of angels, but the way that you see the word of God most often going forth is through God's people as they are faithful to proclaim the gospel of which they are unashamed because it is the power of God unto salvation. 
And as it has acted upon me by the sovereign will of God and the power of God to save me, it comes with a duty to proclaim it and a delight, doesn't it? To proclaim it to others that they too might know the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonders of life in him. Well, let's move to verses 15 to 18, all of that by way of review, where we see thirdly that it's not just the gospel that is unchained, it is not just the preaching of Christians that cannot be shackled, but thirdly, the joy of Christians cannot be shackled, the joy of Christians. And this is what we see in the Apostle Paul, that despite his chains, despite the very challenging circumstances, that, that, that he remains full of joy because the gospel is spreading. Despite all of his detractors, despite the criticism, despite the difficulty that others sought to bring upon him, as we'll see here in a minute, those who were glad to see him in prison, those who sought to utilize that opportunity to bring more, heap more misery upon Paul, to bring him into distress. What we see is that Paul's joy only grew. Surprisingly, his imprisonment meant that most of the church was more intentional about pre preaching Christ to the world around them, and that brought him joy. But what you need to understand, and we did not cover this at all last week, is that while Paul's example and Paul's imprisonment emboldened the saints at Rome to preach the true gospel, you need to understand that not all were friends. Not everything was perfect. There are two distinct groups among those who, in Paul's words, have far more courage to speak the word of God. Two distinct groups. And we find them both in verse 15. Look at it with me. Note the two uses of the word some. Paul says in verse 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. There are two sums. There are two groups. And what is really perplexing for us is that these people who are spoken of here as having preached Christ, that, that they are members of the church, presumably at Rome, but what is, what is perplexing is that they're seeking to bring hardship and distress on the Apostle Paul. Some of whom Paul describes in verse 14 as quote-unquote brethren are not acting much like brothers. What we see here is a group of people, and I assume it's a minority of people, who are opposing Paul out of personal jealousy and rivalry. And I guess when you really think about jealousy and rivalry, maybe we need to say that they're acting more like brothers after all, right? Christians, note this, you should note this from this text, this should help us encounter some of the speed bumps that we inevitably encounter in the church and in our lives as we move towards heaven. 
we need to acknowledge the fact that Christians can behave badly. Christians can behave badly. Nearly every commentator, and when I say nearly, I mean all but one that I read was in full agreement that those who are seeking to bring Paul anguish by all appearances are in fact members of the church at Rome and presumably Christians. How do you get there? Well, first of all, look at verse 16. Note that all of them, he says the latter, uh, no, note beginning in verse 15, sorry, some to be sure, note this, are preaching what? They're preaching Christ. Verse 17, he says it specifically about the former group when he says the former, that is those who were Paul's detractors, the former proclaim Christ. You look again in verse 18 and he says, what then only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. This is Paul who said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Could Paul really be delighting in a false gospel from false brethren? There's no possible way. Paul never could have rejoiced at the preaching of a pseudo-Christ or the preaching of some kind of worldly philosophy or some kind of false gospel. No, by every account, these, these are those within the church who are in fact emboldened by Paul's example, but some of them do not like the apostle Paul. In other words, there are two factions working alongside one another here in Christian ministry. I've told this to you before. I'll I'll never forget being in downtown Auburn with a group of men from here, and we were preaching Christ, moving through Old Town Auburn, where many of the high school and and others who were just shopping in in the stores there were, and we were preaching Christ, and then there was a group from another church in Auburn following us and then apologizing for the gospel that we preached and then preaching a little softer gospel, one that wasn't quite so concerned about sin and repentance and more just about the love of Jesus. That was weird. Paul here has two factions involved in Christian ministry And there's nothing here really to suggest that they were preaching anything but the true gospel of the true Christ. These were not those, as Paul speaks of in Galatians 1.6, who were preaching a different gospel. These were not those who were preaching, 2 Corinthians 11.4, another Jesus. These were not the Judaizers who were preaching somehow that Jesus is good, you need him, but you also need Moses. It's Jesus plus Moses if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven. This was not the false teachers of even Philippians 3. If you want to look over there in in verse 2, where Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of of the false circumcision. He's warning the Philippians 
against false teachers in that text. Down in verse 18, he describes them again, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That is not who these people are. That's a different group. These are brethren, the whole lot of them. And they are boldly preaching the gospel of the true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is nothing wrong with their message per se. What's wrong is their motives. It wasn't what they were preaching, but why they were preaching that Paul distinguishes between these two groups. Now, who were they? Well, he doesn't identify them, and we can't really figure that out with any sort of specificity. Paul certainly knew who they were as he was assessing them, and he assesses them accurately as he writes. The first group we're going to call detractors, those who had it in for Paul. What were they like? Well, we find them in verse 15 again, described this way, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Note the motives. They're preaching Christ, but they're doing it from envy and strife. In other words, these men had the gospel in their mouths, but they had sin in their hearts. And Paul identifies really three motives. The first one is envy. What is envy? It's a passionate craving for something that someone else has. It's tied in with covetousness. It's a, it's a passionate, meaning it's felt and it's strong. It is a craving for what someone else has. And that can be material, that could be uh, a certain status, certain gifts. Envy has an evil stepsister whose name is Jealousy. And if there is a, a, a technical distinction between the two, envy wants what it does not have. Jealousy seeks to hang on to what it has. You can think of King of the Mountain. Jealousy stands on top. It seeks to hold its place, its privilege, its position. Envy stands at the bottom, is trying to make an assault on jealousy. It wants what jealousy has. If that confuses you, don't sweat it. Just hang on to the fact that these two are used synonymously in our culture. Flip over with me to John chapter 3. The Gospel of John and chapter 3. We get a wonderful illustration at the expense of John's disciples. of envy. We'll begin in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them, now note this, and baptizing. John was also baptizing, that is, John the Baptist. Of course he was. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and People were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now look at verse 25. 
Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is baptizing, John is baptizing. John's disciples see that. They come to John the Baptist and they say, hey, you remember that guy? You remember Jesus? He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, look, John, are you aware of this? He is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Those are the words of envy. John and his disciples had a corner on the market. They were wildly popular. Many were coming to them. Many were coming to them to be baptized. John was baptizing in the Jordan. And what do you see now? The masses are turning from John. That ministry is declining. It is dimming. And Jesus now is drawing a following. And his disciples, John's disciples say, many, all of them in fact, are, are going to him. John is a humble man. Verse 27, he's a mature man. He's a wise man. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. That's a way of saying this is the will of God. You yourselves are witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices, get that word, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Do you see, John's disciples were jealous. They were envious. They wanted, to, they, they wanted the crowds to continue to come. And they came to John saying, man, this guy's taken our, taken our, our, our livelihood. This guy's, this guy's more popular than you, John. John says, in that I rejoice. How parallel to the Apostle Paul's attitude in all of this. Envy is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Jesus, you'll recall, was delivered over by the chief priests because of envy. For the same reason, they didn't like the fact that the nation was beginning to follow. They were losing their grip on all the people, and that bothered them to the core. And so they, they schemed to find a way to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here these guys are, these detractors who are envious of Paul. They're undoubtedly envious of his calling, envious of his success, envious of his testimony, envious of his power and his intellect, his giftedness, his undoubted status in the church. You remember that, that Rome, the church at Rome, existed before all of this for some time, 
And there were probably men in that church who were recognized, men who were talked about by the church, men who were admired by the church. And along comes the Apostle Paul, a man more gifted, a man who preached a better sermon, a man who saw more converts, a man who was suffering more deeply for the faith. And he was the voice now. He was the man. People were gravitating to Paul. People talked about Paul. People admired Paul. Paul was in the headlines. And you can see how envy would rise. And these men were driven to preach Christ because they were jealous of Paul's success and popularity. And now that he was in prison, now was the time. Now was the time to get back out among the people and to declare the gospel, yes, that Paul preaches, but to do it so that we might again attain to the place that we had formerly. This was personal for them. They were very jealous of Paul's success and they were driven by animosity and jealousy. They were green with envy and in our capitalist society, we would say Paul was a competitor to them. And their envy resulted in, Paul says, strife or contention. There was conflict and there was wrangling and turbulence and there was relational friction and we're not told exactly what, this, what form this strife took, but you can bet as they were driven by jealousy that they were taking shots publicly at the Apostle Paul, trying to, to undermine his ministry and his, his work. We see that kind of thing in other letters, don't we? That, that Paul is demeaned and his ministry is undermined. You, you've read the book of Corinthians, yes? You're aware that this is the way that, that others often went about it. The sad thing is, beloved, <laughs> this kind of thing is still going on in churches all the time, isn't it? This I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. This kind of posturing by leaders, the kind of slander and gossip about leaders in seeking to undermine not only their authority but whatever, whatever affection the people might have for them. Envy and jealousy, I, I, I'm going to a conference this next week and, and sometimes I just dread, as much as I love meeting new men, I dread the inevitable first question. You know what it is, don't you? How big is your church? Why does that matter? Really, why does it matter at all? Whether we're 12, 200, or 20,000, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter in the least. Don't ask guys that question. Really, find a new question, something meaningful. Just thank them for their ministry. How about start there? Tell them you love them for their work, you appreciate them. 
but don't ask them about the size of their church. Am I in control of the size of the church? I'll tell you what, if I am, we're in real trouble. Not simply because we're few, but we're in trouble because now I'm going to start concocting methodologies that will get people in here. I'll tell you what, I'll preach 12 minutes because the studies tell you that 12-minute sermons, that's the max attention span for most people in our day and age. If you believe the church growth movement handbooks, you've got to preach shorter. You've got to have much better coffee than we have, much better. You've got to have not just one playground, but six. You've got to, I mean, it just goes on and on. If, if we're Nordstrom's and the goal is that the customer is always right and we're trying to sell our soul to that, well, then we're in real trouble, aren't we? There is some weird, inner, ugly envy and jealousy that, that, that leads even pastors to lead with that question. How big is your church? And it's because we're fleshly. It's because we know that if 50,000 people show up for a Niner game and only 40,000 show up for a Raider game, that somehow the, the, the Niners are better. They're doing it right. They're winners. Beloved, this is not the way God thinks. Oftentimes, you'll see a particular ministry have great success, and you'll watch as other ministries then begin to demean them and undermine them and to criticize their methodologies. Good heavens, what should we be doing? Rejoicing, right? That the gospel goes forth and that many are coming. If they are truly coming to the true Christ, the true gospel, if they are coming to a true salvation, then we ought to rejoice over the fact that God is affecting great things through that ministry. Why are we envious of other ministries? Let me bring this closer to home. Why are you envious of the person who sits just a few people down to the right or left of you today? That she's been given a voice like that and gets to stand up front. Or that he's been given money like that and therefore he can be more generous perhaps than you are able. Or that that person got to go to school and therefore they have more Bible knowledge than I've got. Or that that person over there is so gregarious and outgoing and encouraging that people are just drawn to him and I sit alone over here as one who has nothing to offer this place. I tell you, the Bible says otherwise. If you're in Christ, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit and you are necessary to this place. But your gift may not be recognized like somebody else's. I mean, it, it, it goes from a guy's godliness and wisdom and giftedness and generosity and his kindness and his manifestation of, of the power of God in his life through the fruit of the Spirit to, to his service, to the, to the depth of his humility. It goes all the way. Folks, we know this, don't we? That this kind of envy goes all the way to a compliment that somebody made about someone else's dessert and not mine. 
Somebody else is leading and not mine. Somebody else is a teacher and not me. It's ugly, but we can look, can't we, temporarily in this message about joy, about the reality of our hearts. It's just grotesque. It's fleshly. Mirror, mirror on the wall. We're white as snow. That comes from Snow White, right? But you get, doesn't it? Is that what that was? Is that right? Thanks, Laura. I knew you could come up with Disney when I needed it. Yeah. Mirror, mirror on the wall, folks. That's genius. Because that, that demonstrates early Disney, right? Like Pinocchio. There's so many good lessons in early Disney, not many later, but I, I, won't, I won't voice my opinion on that. Anyway, he, here's the point that our own insecurities and our self-promoting, we can go about serving Christ from wicked motivation, self-centered motivation. Some guys' entire lives are bent on just evaluating and assessing other people's ministries. I think they call it a discernment ministry, right? I a gift of discernment, I, my job, I, I'm part of, I've got a discernment ministry. DM, we call it, right. This is what this group was operating. This is the basis from which they operated. This is where they launched from, these detractors. Now, there's another motivation that Paul assigns to them. We've looked at two of them. We looked at envy. We looked at strife. The third one is found in verse 17. Look down there with me. These former, Paul says, the former, he's referring to the detractors. He says they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This selfish ambition is a phrase that was used of politicians who pursued their own private interests at the expense of those they represented. And as odd as it sounds, these men were using what was good, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to establish their own prominence and and standing. They were like Diotrephes of of 3 John who loved to be first among the leaders of the church. He loved the preeminence. That was his motive. That's, that's what he was all about, that, his, that he would be distinguished, that his names would be, would be up in the marquee lights. And the, that text tells us, we don't have time this morning to look at it. You can look at 3 John. But he was very uncooperative. He was rebellious. He was self-assertive. He sought to discredit the apostle John, and John would have none of it. John says, when I come, I'm going to expose this man for who he is. Selfish ambition in the church, as well as everywhere else, but particularly in the church, is disastrous. James says it this way, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I like the Holman Christian standard. There will be disorder and every kind of evil. And that's true. Where motives like this are driving things. When you've got everybody here competing for the attention of everybody here, we're, we're just completely off base. What we do, we do for him and unto one another as servants. 
You can see how backwards that all is if we're laboring for attention from one another so that we might rise as kings. Totally opposite. And that's what was happening here. You see envy, strife, and selfish ambition. All of them are listed in Galatians 5 as very impure motives, very works of the flesh. And, and, and again, we just have to pause and pull over momentarily to ask, can, can believers really conduct themselves like this? And the answer to that question is obviously yes when we give in to the flesh, when we're not individually and corporately at war with these kind of things. These men were relishing in them. And they were thinking, the text says, to call Paul, cause Paul distress. They wanted to inflict anguish in Paul. The word is thlipsis. I just love saying it. Thlipsis. And it, 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 it has the idea of pressure, particularly internal pressure. The kind of pressure that makes your heart rate go up and, and, and makes you nervous and anxious. It has the idea of narrowness or friction, things that constrict. They wanted to cause Paul internal anxiety and frustration because he was stuck where he was stuck. There was nothing he could do about it. He was hemmed in, and they wanted to get in Paul's head. <laughs> he was an obstacle to their spiritual superstardom. And so they took advantage of their window of opportunity. And again, I, I would just pull over here and ask the question, what would be your response to this sort of thing? Were you the Apostle Paul? Fellow believers trying to horn in on your ministry. Other believers taking shots at your reputation or questioning your methods, criticizing all that you had, had worked so hard for and sacrificed so much for, aiming to take advantage of your suffering for their own advantage, people undercutting your significance, undermining your faithfulness, seeking to, to overshadow your service in the Lord. It's not easy, is it? A very ripe occasion for any one of us to go the route of a victim mentality, to be wounded, to lose heart, to slump. Well, there's a second group. And these are not Paul's detractors. These we're going to call the devoted. Those who are sympathetic to the Apostle Paul. And we find them at the end of verse 15. And we'll deal with them in, in more brief fashion, note this. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. This is a different some. This is a devoted some. And they too have three motives. The first one's found right there at the end of verse 15, goodwill. It had the idea of satisfaction. It's translated in the scriptures sometimes kind intention or good pleasure. Really, it's the idea of bringing delight to someone. That's goodwill. When you bring ice cream to my house, when we have you over for dinner, that's practicing goodwill. It's great will if it's Haagen-Dazs coffee. All right. These are seeking to bring delight to the Apostle Paul. 
and they certainly had goodwill toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but don't miss it. What Paul is talking about here is the focus of their motivations is the way they looked at him. They wanted to relieve his burden. They wanted to be a blessing to him. They wanted to, to carry on the ministry of Paul faithfully given that he was in chains. They were motivated to step up their contribution. Verse 16 gives us another motive of these. Paul says again, the latter, he's referring here to the devoted, that they do it, he says, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Same, same thing. They loved Paul. That, of course, found its fountain in their love for Christ, their love for the gospel. That's why they loved Paul. And they, they knew Paul was in jail, and they wanted to, to come around him. In fact, they loved him for the fact that he was in jail and, and that he was, he was being faithful while there. That's what he means by saying that, that he was chained. <clears throat> he was in chains because he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. In other words, Paul was given a stewardship by God, wasn't he? And that stewardship, as he fulfilled it, landed him in jail. He was an ambassador for Christ and an apologist for the truth, and he ended up in, in prison because of it. Paul was faithful to that stewardship, and that faithfulness stirred up their love and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third motive that I think is implied here and. You can see if you agree with me, but if you look at verse 17, speaking about his detractors, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than, note this, from pure motives. Is Paul directly attributing their pure motives to the devoted crowd? No, but I think it is implicit in that. He's saying this group's from impure motives. The implication is the other group, pure motives. Pure motives. Their motives were pure that word means chaste, sincere, honest, nothing corrupt, nothing soiled, no selfish intention whatsoever, no hypocrisy in these people. They were true through and through. In fact, Paul will say that in the very next verse. Look at verse 18. Paul comes to his conclusion, and he says, what then? That's a, that's a rhetorical device. He's saying, think about all that I've just said to you. Think about how I've described to you. That the gospel is not chained. That the preaching of the church is not chained. That my joy is not chained. He says, look, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, and by that he's speaking again of the detractors, or in truth, which he attributes to those He's, he's characterizing there the devoted. He says, in every way Christ is proclaimed. Pretense is something done for outward show. That's what the Pharisees did. You remember that? They were always cleaning the outside of the cup. They weren't too worried about the filth that was inside. Like some of you guys when you were in college. You remember that kind of thing, right? And the, you guys take offense at that? Come on, let's just be honest with one another. I had a roommate who didn't do his sheets for like two semesters. It, it, anyway, when they got dirty enough that he could, yeah, stop. All right, here, here, here's the thing. This is all outward show. 
One really intriguing use of this word is in Acts 27.30. You remember that Paul was being moved and he he crashes. They, they, They run aground and before they run aground, they're trying, to put the, they're, they're trying to put the anchors down. Well, the men who were supposed to be putting the anchors down were actually putting what down? The lifeboat, so that they might get into it. You see, the pretense was, yeah, I volunteered to put the anchor down. The reality of it was, I'm going to get in the lifeboat. See ya. You guys can go down with the ship. That's pretense. The devoted are characterized by truth, and that's not just the context, the content of what they spoke, but it's actually the inward motivations that they had. There was no error, if you will, in their message or their motives. And so then he comes and just lays out, Paul does, this verdict, this conclusion. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I Rejoice. Beloved, where does that kind of contentment, can I even say serenity, come from? Remember, he's been in jail for four years. You can mark this, that it is not realized in getting everything you want. That's sort of the assumption that we come out of the womb with, right? That joy is the result of me getting my way and getting everything I want. Things going well with me. And anything that interrupts that pursuit then is a, is a, it's a bound, it's a, it's a, it's a hurdle to my joy. It's a hindrance to my joy. That cannot be the case if you think at all about the reality of Paul's circumstances. Joy is not found in favorable circumstances. As as one of my favorite pastors put it, and some of you will relate to this, it is not happiness in happenings. Do you recall that? It's not happiness in happenings. It It is something other than that. It is found, really, if we take Paul's example here, in self-denial, not in self-fulfillment. It's found in giving, which is better than getting. It's, it's found in Jesus Christ who demonstrated these very things, didn't he? I love the fact that Paul just does not get swept up into the drama of all that's going on outside of his rented quarters. He sees it, and the detractors are thinking to themselves, aha, we've got him. We can get to Paul. We can get our notoriety and our popularity back. And what can Paul do about that? He's stuck to a Roman guard. And that would have worked if Paul was about notoriety and popularity. Paul was not frustrated because Paul didn't care about that stuff. Paul wasn't driven by selfish motives. He he wasn't about personal advancement. What dominated Paul was the grace of God that had been shown to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was stronger than the very bonds that, that tied his arms together, what was stronger than those chains around his wrists, was his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the progress of the kingdom of God. 
That's what dominated Paul's world. Paul saw the fact that Christ was being proclaimed, that the gospel was spreading unhindered, and in that, he rejoiced. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the motives of others, Paul was rejoicing in the fact that the grace of God was going to others just as it had come to him. Now, joy is notoriously difficult to define, and we will work at a definition in the weeks ahead, okay? But what I want you to see this morning is simply this, that Christian joy is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. If you can walk out of here with that anchored in your head, I'll be grateful. Christian joy is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. It is durable, it is resilient, and it cannot be quenched even in the midst of the most profound suffering, sorrow, and grief. In fact, we'll see that we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord at all times. Joy, beloved, is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and at, at some level, as I said, we all know it. We're not passive, in, or we are passive in our reception of it, but, but we also see that we have a responsibility to do what Christ has commanded us to do, and that is rejoice in him. And that is good news. Paul is in jail, but he is joyful in jail. Paul is shackled, but his joy cannot be shackled. And that thought brings us to the table this morning. Turn to Hebrews 12. If you would. And verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Note this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author to the Hebrews says, in chapter 11, here's a hall of faith. You can look to all of these people, look at how they started, look at how they finished, and they did it by faith. And they are, they are, they are men who are unworthy of this world because of their, uh, uh, the world's unworthy of them, I should say, because, because of the faith and, and the strength and their perseverance all the way to the end. But when he comes to talking about resisting sin and not losing heart, he jumps right to the ultimate example and he says, you think about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you think about him who for the joy set before him, did Jesus live in pleasant circumstances? Did he have a hole like a fox in which to go into? Did he have any pillow for his head? What brought him joy was what was laid before him, and that is a reference both to the obedience to his father. That brought him great joy to to offer himself as an offering for sin. I also believe it brought him joy to think about the redemption of his bride, the church, his people, the salvation of sinners. The cross was agony. The cross was full of shame. But he endured all of that for the joy of being able to accomplish redemption for his people and to be be pleasing to his father in every respect. And Jesus in John 15 tells us that, that he wants us to share in his joy and that our joy might be full. And I want to encourage you this morning as we come to the table to bring your joy to the table. It's like one of those verses, like Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore what? Stand firm and don't be subject again. Stand in that freedom. Rejoice in that freedom. My friend, it is right to come here broken and begging and humble. It is only right to come here as a sinner saved by grace. But understand that this table is for sinners like you and me. Not people who have their life together. Not people who lived a pretty good job. You know, this week I did pretty well. I guess I can take in clear conscience. No. Yes, examine yourselves. But listen, as you examine the reality of yourself, what? Jesus said the primary focus of all of this is do this in remembrance of me. Not your sins. You take those sins and you lay them at the foot of the cross and you remember him who came from heaven and took on on a human body, took on a human nature. You remember him who denied himself and who lived sinlessly in this sin-saturated earth who knows what it is to be tempted in all things. You remember him who gave himself not as a begrudging savior, but he gave himself as one who is enduring this for the joy of your salvation, that you might know his joy. Beloved, take and eat in remembrance of him. This is his body and his blood, which from his own mouth is for you. Examine yourself, dwell on Jesus. Remember him, fix your eyes on him, consider him, remember his love and his purity, his humility, his faithfulness, his mercy, his suffering. 
the joy in all that he accomplished in our salvation and let your joy be, be, be full as you come and partake this morning.